Hi, I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're listening to Polit, the podcast for political posits. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this, the 12th episode of the Polit podcast, the podcast for political posits. I hope everybody is well. I didn't get a chance to do an episode last week because I was just swamped with work, but glad to be here today. And today, as always, we're going to go through a post on the blog. If you haven't been to the blog, please go check it out. There should be a link in the description box below, to the left, to the right, depending on what platform you're using. Please, please, please like, share and subscribe. It would mean the world to me and follow, please. <laughs> also, please go to the blog and follow the uh, follow by email on the mailing list. Uh, because that way you can get all the extra content that is on the blog that doesn't make it to the podcast. I normally attempt to blog two or three times a week, and only one of those posts ever makes it to the podcast. So please go and check it out. Also, I am looking for PhD students, academics, researchers, professors, assistant professors of politics and international relations to come on the podcast and to give half an hour of a discussion about your most recent work. So if that interests you, please go to the website and get in contact. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, so straight to it. Today, we're going to be looking at on feminism as tradition, not ideology. Feminism is an interesting, if at times divisive topic for discussion at every level of conversation. When it is said that feminism is divisive, it should not just simply be implied that there is a division between the inside and the outside of feminism per se, but that feminist thought is as equally divided internally as it is with other schools of thought externally. No doubt, with it being International Women's Day earlier this week, there will be a number of voices discussing the topic. Of these voices, it's really important to recall that there is not necessarily a Manichaean us and them, conflictual division between those who are interested by or practice feminist politics and those who negate it as cancel culture or subversive, despite the constructed narrative. With the broad and formal discussion of the so-called culture wars across every platform or media outlet, it can often be easier to think in these terms. Indeed, this polarised dualism can offer some kind of foundation or map to navigate the cultural politics of the times. The trouble with such a foundation, quite frankly, is its inability to detect nuances, broadly subsuming different argumentation into two binary oppositional camps, e.g. for and against. And this undermines not only the fragility of perspective, but also a certain willingness to understand the wider group one does not fall into. This is not to suggest that one should necessarily be anti-foundationalist, to negate any kind of uh, uh, underpinning, as this always risks falling into a kind of pure relativism, where one's capacity to judge is actually hindered by understanding, as opposed to aided by it. So today I would like to to briefly sketch out why I think that feminism is an interesting tradition of thought to engage with, and why it's not an ideology, as a short introduction to the tradition 
to commemorate this International Women's Day. The first thing to note is that I understand feminism to be a tradition of thought, as opposed to an ideology. Ideology is totalizing, where any single idea takes the position of an all-encompassing gnosis, able to award meaning to anything within the historical framework of that particular logic. Gnosis means knowledge, by the way. For example, it becomes a key to gaining a watertight foundational understanding to mediate all aspects of life. In this, my mind is always, always returns to the political theorist Eric Vergelin and his discussion in The New Science of Politics about how uh, uh, modern uh, politics is somewhat Gnostic. The term ideology itself implies, as the political theorist Hannah Arendt claims, quote, that an idea can become the subject matter of a science just as animals are the subject matter of zoology, and that the suffix logi in ideology, as in zoology, indicates nothing but the logoi, the scientific statements made on it. And as such, it is the logic of an idea. Its subject matter is history to which the idea is applied." End quote. The primary idea fundamental to National Socialism, Nazism, for example, was the concept of historical race struggle, which could then be pseudo-scientifically applied to explain every object or process by this logic. Okay, so you could ask any question. So why is this microphone in existence? The answer would be race struggle, and this is why. Or you could ask why am I unemployed and others are not? The answer would be race struggle, and this is why. Or you could ask why is X the way it is? And the answer would be race struggle, and this is why. <laughs> You get the picture. All understanding can be subsumed by the applied logic of a single idea, eradicating the faculty of thought altogether. I understand that this may be a particularly narrow grasp of ideology. However, it's the most apt because it allows us to separate the truly ideological from merely partisan, ideational, moralistic, principled, or just pragmatic forms of politics. Ideology is totalizing. It encompasses and can explain all things with the pseudo-scientific appeal to and application of its supposed skeleton key-like logic. Feminism just simply is not this. Although there is a large debate concerning what should be included under the umbrella of feminism, the very fact that there is an absence of such a totalizing single piece of knowledge or idea stands testament to this fact. Some may suggest the notion that women are treated unfairly, unjustly, or unequally in comparison to men is the central idea of feminism, and so permits its qualification as an ideology in this frame. Nevertheless, such a stipulation would ignore a that even this as a central tenet is highly contested by a number of feminists, and b that this cannot be scientifically totalized, pseudo or not, to a universal level of the all-encompassing in order to explain any and all things. In this manner, feminism is not ideological. It is a tradition of thought, or rather, an approach mediating our socio-political constructions and edifices. Let's unpack this a bit more. 
The internal and historical factions of feminism are often seen as being divided into a number of so-called waves, first, second, third, and sometimes a fourth. Each wave has added to the feminist discourse in some manner over time, almost in a geological fashion where each layer bleeds into the next. This implies that with every new edition comes a series of internal conflicts between the propositions and stipulations of the various waves. To give an example, first wave liberal feminists, following the thought of Mary Wollstonecraft, centred its focus on the struggle of women in the public sphere, whereas second wave liberal feminism, headed by such individuals as Betty Friedan, shift emphasis to women's rights and experiences of subjugation in the private as well as public spheres. This extended the aims of the feminist movement beyond that of property rights or suffrage alone, and thus triggered a chain of dialogues about the relation between the public and private spheres as a whole. The distinct waves of feminism place a certain emphasis on different phenomena, experiences or concepts. Second wave, differing to the first wave, explores the politics of gender and the experiences of women both socially and in the private sphere, be that in terms of reproductive rights as a labouring class, sexuality, domestic abuse and so on. One of the greatest failures of the second wave was in its lack of account for the different subjective or perhaps closed into subjective, but that's for another day, experiences of women in relation to their subject. This led to the formation of a third wave that sought to address this issue of experiential exclusion, raising consciousness for and adding the subjective experiences of the non-white, queer, trans, post-colonial and or post-human subject to the wider feminist discourse. The concept of intersectionality discussed by Kimberly Crenshaw is a fantastic illustration of this. Crenshaw contended that critical feminist studies did not take into account the dynamic interaction of race and gender in contributing to the everyday tribulations of non-white women, and as such needed to become intersectional. Equally, Judith Butler and her work on performative linguistics and norms of gender enabled a certain insight into relaxing the connection we uphold and recreate between the manner in which we hail bodies as being gendered and the production of exclusion or vulnerability. For instance, Butler achieves this by attempting to critique the subtle connection between biological or anatomical sex, gender norms and one's supposed role in the process of heterosexual reproduction. Now, one thing she always maintains is that she doesn't claim that biological sex is socially constructed. But what she does claim, what Butler does claim, is that there's a, a, a an odd sort of linguistic connection between the experience of a particular body uh, and heterosexual reproduction. By seeking to relax this performative nexus, we open the space for new forms of livable life to be led, without a crushing sense of vulnerability or potential for bodily harm. Basically, whose experience, whose subject or process of subjectivation is excluded when gender norms are constructed and re-performed thusly? That's third wave. Fourth wave, albeit a disputed phenomenon, continues along a similar path to that of third wave, 
but focuses attention on the relationship between sex, gender, the subject, and the increasing magnitude communicative and practical technologies play a part in social life, as such as the effect of social media and combating the subject subjugation of women on a digital as well as material plane of social existence. A brilliant example of fourth wave feminism is the hashtag MeToo movement. What unites these different factions, however? How do they come together to form a tradition of thought? This I'd like to speak about now. Despite their discrepancies and differences, the varying feminist perspectives are unified in the overall assertion that the body, one often gendered, experiences the effects of social, political, economic and normative structures, making that body limited or vulnerable in some manner. The first wave centred its emphasis on the female body achieving the legal and political rights of the public sphere, rights that are, are overtly justified through the universalist liberal frame of inalienable human rights. The gendered female body is entitled to public rights because that body is a human body, authorised by that virtue to engage with the political sphere because they are thus a political animal, by definition inalienably a zoon politicon, as Aristotle claimed, a political animal. As liberal rights extended into the private sphere, so too did the discourse around the political structural limitation of the feminine body. As a body endowed with inalienable rights, these rights of personhood do not end at the threshold of the private sphere. It's not like it's not like one has a certain set of rights on the street, but a different set of rights in the house, in the home. Nor can critiques of productive labouring life escape a lens examining how the division of labour is drawn along normative lines between gendered bodies, or even in the case of Carol Pateman and her fantastic work, The Sexual Contract, how our historico-theoretical notions of contractual civic society and political obligation relate to the gendered body. With the inception of intersectional feminism, the gendered body was exposed as an overt site of normative clustering, where norms, structure, power, discourse, linguistics, and performative experience all collide. Questions such as, how is a gendered body constructed? How do gendered bodies experience gender norms differently by variations of their bodied subject? How do gendered bodies experience vulnerability by virtue of their gendered status? How does historical locality add to the experiences of a gendered body? Or even just what constitutes a gendered body? These kind of questions fell front and centre in the third wave of discourse. No, feminism is not an ideology. It lacks an overarching claim to some gnosis that is applicable as an all-encompassing logic of life and history. Nonetheless, despite its variations, despite its splinters, fractures and divisions, through its corporeal dimension, feminism has forged a tradition of thinking about the constitutive relationship between the body, structure, politics, norms, social life, and gender. Whether or not one agrees with the premises and conclusions of individual feminists or feminist groups, the feminist tradition challenges us to think corporeally, bodily, to consider life 
as a bodied subject, where norms collide to cluster around our bodied existence, and how our experiences of these bodies encounter the political. This, therefore, is without a doubt a valuable asset and another precious discursive tool we can employ to think our way through the strange and sometimes dark times we're forced to navigate. So I'm Kieran O'Meara. You've been listening to me talk on the Polit Podcast, the podcast for political posits. Tune in next week for another episode. Please like, share, subscribe, click that little follow button. And don't forget to go to the blog where there are citations for everything that's been discussed and more content. Thank you very much for listening.